J.R. Butler, co-founder of The Shift Group, and you're listening to Merchants of Change. This is a podcast about transferring the skills and behaviors we acquire as athletes into being a professional technology salesperson. Each week, we'll introduce you to a top performer who will help us understand how they became professional merchants of change. All right. What's up, kid? How we doing, John? Doing good, brother. Doing good. Good to see you, JR. Dude, thank you so much for joining us today. We're fired. I'm fired up about this, man. I, I listen to so many of your podcasts and, and you know, I, I, I play back a lot of your stories. One of my favorite ones is who's doing this. Hopefully we can get into that a little bit. Awesome. Um, awesome. So, John, the, the podcast is called Merchants of Change. Um, it's really for new sellers and a lot of people that are thinking about a career in sales. Um, our mission, my mission, is to, tra- to to really help transform elite athletes into elite sales professionals. Um, and I think you know when I think of that transition, your career is 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 exhibit A of this playing out in real life. So um, we like to start with the sports and then get into the sales and the transition. So I'd love to kind of give everybody a little bit of taste on your athletic background. Obviously. Football guy, Boise State, Bowling Green. What are some of your fondest memories of playing sports, John? Well, you know, when you started off in the intro and and you talked about elite athletes transitioning to elite uh, salespeople, I got fifty percent of that. I, I wouldn't consider myself an elite athlete. I uh, I, uh, uh, I I I loved um, I loved my fond memories of, of about competing and about you know college football I, I i really got lucky so i i was able to play with a national championship team out in uh boise idaho how i got out there's a whole nother story that we don't have enough time because I'm, I'm from detroit <laughs> and so i had some issues i had some issues in in uh in high school uh that uh, kind of uh, had me go out two thousand miles away from home but the people that I met out there and just and really they're still dear friends of mine today um, in both schools. And, and I was able to, um, you know, I was able to uh, letters, letter as a freshman um, and uh, they Boise State had a, a couple of issues uh, um, just back in that time with some things that were going on with the NCAA. And I was able to transfer uh, to Bowling Green, which was closer to where I'm from in in uh, Michigan so my parents could then get a chance to see me play they didn't get a chance to see me play out in uh in Idaho but you know I would say you know my fondest memories I was thinking about this is like um the work like believe it or not it was the work it was the it was the physicality um I was a little bit of a knucklehead on defense and the physicality of being able to completely spend you know energy and and uh you know laying on like vince lombardi talks about laying on the battlefield you know exhausted and victorious and then what i've really come to really covet now jr is the relationships with my buds like and i i go back and speak to the school i spoke to bowling green last year and it was a blast for me to go back and speak to the team and i remember saying to them you're going to underestimate the relationships uh, with these teammates, um, you're going to underestimate it, you know, 
you're going to, I said, look to the left, you look to the right of you, like they told me to do. And, you know, somebody's not going to be here and blah, blah, blah. And I, I took it forward and I said, you know, somebody's going to die early and, and, uh, somebody's going to get, their family's going to get into trouble and somebody's going to really make it, you know, outside of football and do some really, really great things. And, and you're going to, you're going to rely on each other later on in life. And so I really, really covet those relationships, have great relationships with, uh, folks from uh, Boise State and, and from Bowling Green. I've been really, really lucky, really lucky. So, so you were a pretty aggressive defensive player. That was kind of your, your kind of uh, knucklehead dude. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, I was pretty much a Neanderthal. Um, I was, <laughs> I had no technique. Um, I was pretty dominant in high school and I was very, very physical, very aggressive. I was a linebacker and what it covered up and, you know, all joking aside, what it covered up was when you can dominate like that in high school, you, you're, you're not sure whether or not you have fundamentals. And I, I didn't have the fundamentals. When I went to college, I was behind. I had to, um, I had to really, really catch up. And I'm not sure I ever caught up. Uh, I, um, I, I really, when, when you can physically dominate people because you're bigger and stronger and you can run faster and then you get to college and everybody's the same size and everybody's the same strength and you know the way they're lifting weights is like holy smokes and so um yeah so that that's a a pretty good characterization of me is that you know pretty aggressive um a little bit behind fundamentally and i spent the majority of my career trying to catch up and it's, it sounds like your te- your teammates would describe you as like a great a great team guy, great locker room presence. Is that fair? No, actually, okay. Now today, now today, <laughs> if I'm being completely transparent and knowing what you do for a living, you're going to make this podcast successful. So it's going to go out there in the stratosphere. So let me tell you how my my teammates would probably describe me back in the day as um, angry. Um, I was an angry individual for some different reasons that, you know, worked in my favor. And then, you know, later on in life, they don't work in your favor so much. So, but they've seen me transition. Um, I think I became a great teammate, JR, um, but I became a great teammate after. I think I'm a great teammate today. I I think they would say that I'm a good friend and a good teammate. Um, I show up for my teammates. They show up for me. Um, I'm not sure I did that back in the day. I kind of underestimated that, as I told you. One thing I think they would describe me as is I, I although I was a knucklehead, my first play at at uh, Boise State, I got hit by this dude named Paul DeLulo, and Paul DeLulo was the blocking back for um, Marcus Allen at USC when Marcus Allen won the Heisman Trophy, and he was probably six foot one, six two. 240 pounds. He was a native of Boise, Idaho, but he played for USC, played three years for USC. And JR, if you Google the guy, it's amazing. Started for three years at USC and he just got homesick. And so then he transfers to Boise State. And so it's my first play is like a scrim. Oh, we're even drills. I don't know. And JR, I'm going to tell you what, he hit me so hard. So I was probably 210 pound linebacker, you know, when I, he was 240. He was a fullback. He hit me so hard that for the first time in my life, I'm on my back. I never got knocked on my back until that first play at, at Boise State. And this is truth. This is really truth. In that moment, 
I remember in that day, I remember that I said, dude, you better hit your books because you are not going to be a professional football player. And I remember being okay with it. A lot of people get crushed with that. Um, I was very aware why everything was fast. You know, high school, it was boring. Everything was slow. Everything was moving slow. In college, man, it was so fast. And so I think how my friends, my, my teammates would have described me as, I really hit the books hard. I was always getting good grades. I was always, you know, taking the business classes. I was very, very focused on what I was going to do for a living other than football. And I got lucky. So, I got hit by Paul DeLulo on the first <laughs> on the first play. <laughs> so, so you almost got knocked into a career in sales, basically. I did. I did. I did. And, well, you know, so in, in the summertime, uh, when I transferred back, I had to sit out a year. And sorry if I cut you off. I think you were going to ask me, like, so how did I think about sales? Yeah. I got really lucky. So um, one of the guys that helped me transition to the Mid-America Conference was uh, a gentleman, God rest his soul. He just passed away this year. And and um, I was really honored to be able to give part of his eulogy. And his uh, his name is Ron Grenadier. And Ron Grenadier was the recruiter for Ohio State in uh, Michigan. And he recruited you know, great players like Jerome Foster who played for Houston and Pepper Johnson, who you would know in Boston. Uh, Pepper's yep. a, a good friend of mine. And I worked with them in a, in a warehouse. Uh, he, he had athletes working for him. And as he was, you know, recruiting and getting, you know, I wasn't good enough to play for Ohio State, but Mr. Grenadier was very, very um, gracious for me and, and was just a, a wonderful human being and was a, at a good time in my life. And, and, um, I would, at the end of the day, JR, I would sit in his office because he drove me, he drove me back and forth because it was downtown Detroit was where the facility was. And then, you know, out in the suburbs is where I lived and he lived pretty close to me and he would pick me up and we would talk on the way to work and, and, and then we'd talk on the way back. But at the end of the day, I'd go and sit in his office and I would listen to him on the phones. And he was a deal maker, JR. Like he was working it, man. It was a, it was a company called Wolverine Metal. And he was in the scrap metal business. But this dude was an incredible salesman. And I, I wouldn't say that I, that's when I knew I wanted to be in sales. But, you know, the Mercedes he was driving and the big house that he lived in and, you know, being the boss and telling people what's what's what and what's happening. And I knew that I wanted to be in business. And um, and then I figured it out. And when I got to college, you know, and I got to Bowling Green, I took some, you know, more marketing and they didn't have they still don't really have good sales classes today. So we can talk a little bit about that. But um, uh, I, I knew that I wanted to be a businessman. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And, and, um, and so that was a really, really good vision of it. That is awesome. And, and, and that entrepreneurial kind of bug is such a good fit for sales. And I think a lot of athletes have that. And a lot of the data tells us that athletes have that. What, are, what do you think are some of the other reasons that athletes should consider selling as a career? Well, you know, for me, I didn't contemplate it back then, but it was such a smooth transition for me. It was, it was effort. And so the harder you worked, the more opportunity you had to play. So just like in sports, it doesn't mean that you're going to play, but it means you have more opportunities to play. Uh, it doesn't mean you're going to beat the guy out or the, the gal out ahead of you, but 
it, it means that you're going to have an opportunity to, because without the effort, you're not going to have it at all. So that direct correlation of effort, playbooks, you know, having to learn a playbook, having to learn a system, collaboration, teamwork, um, all that stuff is second nature to, to athletes. Uh, and the, the icing on the cake, JR, is meritocracy, where, you know, you get rewarded for how you perform. And I'm not talking about the NIL and that stuff now. That stuff didn't exist when, you know, licensing didn't exist when we, when we were back in the day. But, you know, in, for, for they, it did when I went to Xerox and PTC. And it's like, okay, if I outwork people and if I learn the playbook and if I spend extra time watching film or whatever the translation of the equivalent is, and I be the best that I can be by focusing on the fundamentals, I get paid. I get paid. And so for your listeners that have been fortunate enough to make it into professional sports, that transition um, is really, really powerful and pretty smooth. It's for me, I think it's the, it is the, the best correlation of, of sports is going into sales. It has all of the earmarkings for it. And you got good coaches and you got bad coaches, but you still have to perform. It's like, it doesn't matter. You know, the excuse department is closed. You know, that sign on the shirt that I'm going to get made up. I love it. It's like, nobody cares. Work harder. Um, all of that translates into the business world, into sales. And, um, and I think that I really highly encourage. I do it all the time. I'm on the, I'm on the phone with athletes all the time that call me. Um, and, uh, and kids that, my, you know, my kids' kids, my kids' friends and that kind of stuff. I always, I always am really keen on um, talking to former athletes because, you know, they're used to putting in the work. Um, I'm not telling you it is a 100% no-brainer, but it is the best environment, the closest environment probably that you've, that you've been involved with in, in transitioning into sales. I'm really, really high on that concept. And so that's why I love what you do for a living. I think it's just, uh, I think it's just fantastic. Yeah. We, we, we talk constantly. We have a, we have a course on like sales as a team sport and this idea that like, as a sales rep, you're like the quarterback and your job is to bring in all these tertiary kind of groups and people to help you serve the customer. And like, if 90% of the kids we ask, you know, what do you miss most about sports? They all say that the locker room, the team. Yeah. When we talk about like, you get that right back on day one as a seller, including the coach, including the mentor that you're missing. Um, yeah. And I, I definitely want to get into to Xerox and PTC. But stay you on want- that one for just a second, because this collaboration thing, I think people underestimate. There's a lot oh. of athletes, especially ones that go to the pros, that they rose above the rest of their teammates. And therefore, they might have gotten special treatment or they might have not had to have done all the things. You got to be careful because if you were an elite athlete, I'll just be completely transparent. The best sellers I've ever seen, the best uh, business people I've ever seen that were athletes, they were walk-ons. Right on. They were walk-ons. And so they knew what, and I'm not saying they didn't become great, but they knew what it took to be great. And sometimes people just have DNA and they have experiences where they are blessed. And a lot of people that go on to the pros, you just got a better chance of being hit by lightning than playing a professional sport. So if you go on to be an elite athlete, you have to kind of keep that in check a little bit. There's nothing worse 
than an elite athlete that doesn't know why they're elite. And therefore, they can't capitalize on the things that they do well. They can't teach others. Uh, some of them struggle to be coaches because they because they uh, they can't explain why they're so why they're so great. The last thing on that is um, the collaboration piece. All sales jobs today, you know, if you go into software, let's say, um, you know, ninety nine percent of them are are software as a service, and they are you know collaboration um, uh, a collaboration sale where you're you're moving along with the use of that product with the buyer of that product. And so different people are introduced into that buyer's journey. So if you, if you were somebody that were like, if you were an offensive lineman in football and you knew what the guard was doing and you knew what the tight end was doing, or if you were a receiver and you knew what the other receivers were doing, if you were a quarterback, they do really well because they're familiar with what everybody's doing. The message I'm giving you is, Learn what everybody's doing in that environment. If you're just a seller today, you go in to be a seller, you say, okay, I'm a left tackle. I'm going to learn my job and be a left tackle. You're at risk a little bit because you have to go back and understand, even if you're a great left tackle, you still knew what the, the left guard was doing. You still knew what the tight end was doing. That'll come out big time in, in, uh, in your uh, selling career and tap into what everybody's doing in the sales process, it'll make you a better seller by knowing what everybody else is responsible for. Does that make sense? Makes, Sorry, makes I took so long on that, but I, I think it's a really, really good point. And by the way, when you're interviewing, don't just talk about what made you great and, and how great you were at your position or what have you. Don't forget to tap into being a student of really understanding what everybody on the field was doing. That's going to help you in sales yep. for sure yeah un- understanding those swim lanes and why they're important and how you leverage them yeah makes a hu- huge difference huge yeah. difference um and and i also think like obviously we're focused on getting most of the people we we place are getting their first sales job right um and i'm, I'm so excited to get your take on this because of where you started your career we have a lot of conversations about you know, because because we have so many hiring partners and we get them in front of a bunch of opportunities and then they get offers. And it's like base salary. Here's your OTE. Here's the benefits. You know, you're going to work in the office first. You're going to be remote. Um, and like I have some strong beliefs of what they should be looking for in their first company. And I know you have an incredible experience around this. Can you can you just talk about like what should what should candidates looking into their first sales role? What should they be really looking for for that potential employer? Like, what do you think are the things that matter the most? Well, I think especially for, you know, you could say this is for anybody, but it's I think it's also even uh, more acute for um, for uh, former athletes is um, I I think you want to look for a culture of coaching. You want to look to get into an environment where the company has a culture of coaching. When you think about it, you know, unless you were just like a freak superstar DNA and they exist, like, you know, you could be at a little bit of risk there if you didn't like, you didn't really need coaching or what have you. You're going to need it in sales, you know, make no mistake about it. You're going to need it in sales. And so when you can go into an environment that has a, a culture of coaching and how do you know that? Like you ask questions to this hiring manager that's interviewing you and don't underplay that interview. That interview is 50% of that is for them to vet you. 
The other 50% is for you to vet them and you have to take advantage of that. So I ask questions like, give me an example of um, a coaching experience that you're most proud of. I ask the hiring manager that. Like, give me an example of, you know, who do I remind you of the most and how did you coach them? And I ask them to get real specific, not generic. This is how I coach and this is how. Give me examples of people that have benefited from your coaching because there's a lot of times you'll go into organizations and there's just bad coaches. And if there's bad coaches, you need to know that. doesn't mean you're not going to go to the company, but then you got to make a decision, okay, how am I going to get up to speed? Now I might have to look at more some of the veterans and some of the senior people, but that's something that I really want to know. Let's get technical for a second and let's look at the product and let's look at the addressable market. You got to understand how big is this opportunity? How big is the addressable market or is this little niche thing? It surprises me how many people really don't think about that. And then they just run out of runway. So we sold it to all the people we can sell it to. And now we're struggling a little bit. We've got a small addressable market. Um, another thing that I want to look for is, does the buyer understand what they're buying? Does the buyer, am, am I going to have to be the person that has to explain to the buyer what this is and how they're buying it, or do they have some uh, history of buying something like I'm selling? It's a completely different sale. You know, there's people that are evangelist sellers that are going out and they're educating the marketplace, or there is a problem and a need that a customer understands, and so they understand that problem very well, and they have a history of buying. I like to move into sales careers in the beginning where the buyer has a history of buying. Um, uh, those, are some, those are some of the big ones for me. What I leave out, JR? Well, I think like going back to the product, right? Like, like you, you, I used to use the term missionaries versus mercenaries. I think yours is patriots versus mercenaries. Like I oh, think yeah. it's important to have a belief in the mission, right? And, yeah. and be able to get passionate about it right do you think that that has a lot to do with company i love it thank you for reminding me of that like i'm big on this concept of uh i call it patriots versus missionaries and you know whatever you do you're gonna have to wake up in the morning you're not gonna have to but the most elite happiest most engaged business people i've ever met wake up in the morning and believe what they do matters and so companies that do a really good job with explaining the why of, it makes the how in the what simple. Like you think about a football coach got you fired up. I remember in 1997 when my favorite team, the University of Michigan, Lloyd Carr was coaching University of Michigan. And they had this, they were, they were together as a team. They were, they were uh, climbing a mountain, and the, the championship, national championship game was reaching the summit, and it worked out perfect. It worked out perfect because, like, every game was, like, important, and they were moving up the mountain. And so the kids weren't thinking about, you know, base camp one, like, how suck we're in base camp one, and, you know, you got to get up at O-Dark 30, and you can't breathe, and, like, so if, you know, you got to run these sprints at 5.30 in the morning, what have you, if you got people just running sprints at 5.30 in the morning, you, you lose your perspective of why are we doing this? Like, we're doing this so we can reach the summit. We want to win the national championship. And that was a really good example, a good learning experience for me back in 
1997 when I read about that. And then it made me think about patriots and mercenaries because at PTC, we struggled a bit. You know, we went 43 straight quarters, JR, with never missing our number to Wall Street. That's 10 years of never missing, uh, over 10 years of never missing our number to Wall Street. And that's double digit profitable revenue growth, man. The stock split five times in seven years, went from zero to a billion dollars. Okay, all that's great. But guess what? The first time we missed our number to Wall Street, Wall Street cut our valuation. They cut our stock price in half. Let me tell you what happened. We lost half of the folks. And I don't want to be, I don't want to say that they weren't patriots or mercenaries or whatever, but it's the first time I really thought about this. And there was, I, I watched a lot of people leave when the culture is all about the stock price and leaders get lazy a little bit. And sometimes if that's all you're talking about is the stock price and the wealth. And if that ever gets under pressure, then what happens is if that's what the culture is based on and think about it now, valuations of companies, growth with all these economic headwinds, I'm watching it right now, JR. I'm watching cultures get a little shaky because they've built it. Some of them on, you know, missionaries like comp plans and, and uh, equity that you get in the company and blah, blah, blah. It starts with what you do matters and why you do what you do and what impact does it have? And do you get energy from doing that or not? And let me tell you the difference between patriots and mercenaries, man. The mercenaries, they drop their guns and go home when the comp's at risk or the equity's at risk. What do the Patriots do, JR? They go home, they break up their furniture, they find all the metal parts in their furniture, and they melt it down to make bullets. <laughs> and and I've been a part of that before. Like I've been a part of those cultures that were more, you know, missionary based. Mer sorry, I, I've been saying missionary. Sorry, I meant to say mercenary. Big difference between missionary and mercenary. Sorry, mercenary. When the mercenaries are at risk of getting paid or what have you, they drop their guns, they go find something else to do, the next place to get paid. Patriots melt down their furniture for bullets. And and I want to be, I want to be amongst a group of patriots. I want to be, uh, you know, that's, those are cultures that can transcend problems and challenges. Economic Hendwood, COVID, 2008. Uh, 2001 to 2003, you know, for people that are getting into sales now, you're going to find your next COVID, it's going to happen. And are you going to be in a group of, you know, you're going to be with a group of patriots, you're going to be with a group of, you know, mercenaries. And and um, I highly suggest you vet that out. You can ask the question like, hey, if I asked, is your culture more like mercenaries or is it more like patriots? Ask that to the hiring manager and see what they come up with. I think it's a great interview question for you. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Um, what? So, you know, Xerox and PTC, two of the most legendary kind of sales organizations ever. Can you just talk a little bit like, you know, getting started at Xerox, what oh, that was like? I was so lucky, dude. I was so lucky. My brother worked for Xerox and at the time they believed in DNA and, um, uh, nepotism, and I don't want to say nepotism, but that's a <laughs> negative word about it. But you know, they if your father, you know, they had fathers and daughters and mothers and sons, and they had they believed it was in the DNA. So if it if it was part of your family, there were a lot of families that 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 worked at Xerox. It was a really really cool place to work when I went there back in the mid '80s. 
And they were also, it's where professional selling skills really took off. And that's what they called it, professional selling skills. They were so good at it that they packaged it up and they sold it to other companies. And I was really lucky to get trained there. You know, Neil Rackham came up with spin selling, which was discovery questions around situation, problem, implication, needs payoff. That was spin selling and that was developed uh, while he was working with Xerox Corporation. So we learned all of that. So I got extremely lucky on the art of discovery, which I think is a fundamental, uh, is a, is one of the fundamentals. And I got really, really lucky learning that there it was, you know, all about the customer and uncovering problems, you know, and then I worked for PTC and PTC had a dominant product and it was all about accountability and it was all about, you know, eliminating competition. It was all about execution and PTC was the most accountable, uh, most phenomenal execution company I've ever seen in my life. It was, it was a really unbelievable time. It was like, it was like being a part of the Navy SEALs. Um, it was elite. It was, you know, the people that have gone from PTC and, and gone out, I think they've created something like it, it's gotta be way last time, like seven years ago, when I checked, it was over $300 billion in, uh, market, uh, valuation out in out in the marketplace i think it's probably double that now um it was just a really really incredible place but you know it was tough man it was like if you didn't make your number you were out um and so it was you had to be very very accountable so if i put those two together i learned about the customer and then i learned how to take our solution so i learned about the customer at xerox and how to do discovery and then i learned about how to take my product through a great sales process and map it to those customer problems and eliminate competition and hold myself accountable for all the steps uh, that it would take to do that. Um, and that's where those two worlds came together. So I was extremely lucky to work for two companies like that. I think uh, Navy sale is a good way to describe that PTC culture. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm lucky enough, like born and raised in Boston. So I've, I've been surrounded by a lot of PTC DNA. I was lucky yeah. enough a few weeks ago to, to play golf with two of your, your buddies, Chris Reisig and John McMahon. Phenomenal and people. Like, Phenomenal people. And like, and like literally when I brought up PTC, like their eyes lit up, right? Like they talk about, you know, the, the quarters there are like tours of duty. Um, yeah. What's like, your, what's your favorite memory about being a PTC? Holy smokes, dude. So many. Um, I will tell you, you know, one of my favorite mem memories, truth be told. Uh, so Zero uh, PTC hired me out of Xerox. I wasn't an engineer. Um, I had no experience with manufacturing. I never sold software before. Um, I was selling hardware at Xerox. And these birds hire me to be a, a leader, a sales leader. So I'd never sold software before. And I, you know, in retrospect, I'm so glad I didn't overthink that because if I had overthunk it, man, I'm holy smokes. Well, I got to <laughs> tell you, JR, my first six months, um, I came close. To, if we're talking about Navy SEALs and if I'm being truthful, I came close to ringing the bell. I was a little bit older than the other guys that started at the other men and women that started at PTC. So I had three kids and, um, you know, I, uh, probably, I think I was probably like 32. Yeah, I think I was probably like 32 years old. And a lot of people were starting, you know, probably maybe five years before that. And um, so I had a lot of pressure. 
and you know i moved my family w was still in detroit and i moved down to north carolina in the first six months but i uh i uh i was doing a lot of reflection and i'm so glad that i stuck with it um so i went from april to december probably april to december was just brutal for me and then my first real full year was with ptc i was the number one district manager in north america and um I got to tell you, that's as that's as great as any honor. I had a lot of great things happen to me at PTC. That was as great as any honor that I ever had because I knew what it actually meant to me. And I remember real quiet moments thinking to myself, I'm not going to make it here. And uh, not that I'm a quitter, but I had my family. I had a family responsibility. Dude, I went from like $150,000 salary at Xerox to a $40,000 salary at PTC. It's a true story. And I remember talking to John McMahon when he was recruiting me and he was like, hey, John, and he was gracious because most people would say, if you're asking me about that, you're the wrong person. But Johnny and I have talked about it since then. We're dear friends now. And, and he remembers the conversation. He remembers saying to me, um, hey, John, um, you're not coming here for salary. Let me explain to you what's going to happen to you here. You're going to make three times the amount of money you were making at Xerox. And it's going to be really, really hard. And it's going to be the hardest thing that you've ever done professionally. And everything that he told me um, came true. And he, like, I want to say kind of like undersold it a little bit, meaning it was way harder than we even talked about. But to be truthful, I will tell you, that's one of the fondest memories that I have. I still have that watch that they gave me. And, uh, you know, well, it's not a great watch. It's, you know, but for me, it still sits prominently for me. Because what it meant was like I took on something new and I got knocked on my freaking tail and um, and I figured it out. And um, and I'm really, really proud of that. It's probably my fondest memory. I got a lot, though, dude. I have all the people I met, you know, all those people that, you know, in Boston, the relationships, you know, we get together for reunions. We got one coming up and and uh, it's incredible how many people show up to these things. And and what's incredible also, Jr. is like. The success of these people um, is phenomenal. It was just a, it was a really, really cool place to be. It's crazy. The the coaching tree out of PTC is like Belichick for football. It's just it is. nuts. It it's is. crazy. And we all had it. Like when you say that, JR, we had to have a downline and you were evaluated by your downline. You could have been the greatest leader in the world, but if you didn't produce other leaders, you were not going to progress in that company. And when you think about, like, we can talk about Chris Rysick. Chris Rysick has his own downline and people that are like Chris Rysick's people. John McMahon has his downline, which was, you know, bigger. We're all in John McMahon's downline. John Hanlon has his. Kaplan has his. Wilson has his. Tim Cavins has his. Uh, Terry Powers has his. Uh, Ann Gary has hers. Uh, Tammy Sexton has hers. It's just, you, you know, all of the people have downlines and typically you know those downlines go to like emc and then they go to like you'll see these factions of people you know mark cranny's people that went to opsware and then went into you know hp and you know mcmahon's people went into blade logic and bmc and it's just phenomenal like you can always trace it back to the downlines really cool yeah. And, and, and I, you know, you talk about like inspiring that next group of leaders is really what the, those guys have done. Right. And, and I yeah. think 
I remember when I was thinking about starting Shift Group, I reached out to you to tell you a little bit about it. And you went through a, a similar transition where you went from sales and sales leadership into, you know, starting force management. And, I, you know, as a as a, a, a student of force management, I, I can honestly say, you know, learning the stuff that you guys teach at Turbo changed the trajectory of my company or my career, excuse me, um, and our company, candidly, like we increase conversion rates. We, you know, everybody was, was playing from the same playbook. Like there was just such a shift in the culture and the way that we approached our business. Like, how did you, like, how did you first start thinking about starting what, what is really like a teaching company? Like, what was the story there? I'd love for this to be a greater story, dude, is to, let me be really transparent to you. So my father passed away in 2001. And uh, I was in Europe and I had been in Europe for five years. I was supposed to be there for two years. I was there for five years and I'm sitting on an airplane. I'm sitting on an airplane in 2001 and I'm looking around and I was commuting. So I was at that time, I was probably running the international ops team and my office was in uh, London and I was living in Frankfurt, Germany. So I'm commuting every week to London. And I'm looking around and I'm looking at all these people and I'm like, these people look awful. It's the same people that are on that 7 a.m. flight of, you know, going to London from Frankfurt. Same people every week. And like you kind of you kind of know each other, but nobody talks to anybody. You're just kind of you're like zombies. Right. And I'm looking around I'm like these people look awful. I hope I don't look this bad. And it was like early, dark outside. So the lights on the inside were on. So I looked in the, out the window and my reflection, I'm like, oh, I look that bad. I look like hell. And so what I wound up doing was I'm like, wait, what's missing on this airplane? This is a pivotal moment for me. This is actually how force management was started. I took out a little Lufthansa napkin and I wrote down in a circle. I said, passion. There's no passion on this plane, like what you do matters and why you do what you do or what have you. So that was ringing in my head. And so I, I took out a little napkin. And I wrote down passion. I said, OK, what are the things that I'm passionate about? Well, I'm passionate about my faith. I'm passionate about my wife. I'm passionate about my children. I'm passionate about my ability to utilize my God given skills to create wealth. I'm passionate about my uh, family, my biological family. I'm passionate about my friends. I'm passionate about my community. I still remember that vividly. And I said, okay, well, I flipped over the napkin. I said, well, okay, let's talk about this work opportunity here, this like passionate about skills. Like, what are you passionate about there? And I said, well, I really, really love coaching and developing people. I always thought I was going to be a high school football coach when I was growing, when I was younger, I wanted to be like a coach. I wanted to be like, uh, you know, I, I, and I actually, that's kind of what I do today is like, I've considered myself, I'm just like a, a sales coach that stands up in front of people and, and, uh, and does that. So I, I got really, really lucky. I said, okay, well, but, but what will you coach? Like, what, what will you coach? And I, so I started to look at, <clears throat> you know, well, the things that I learned at Xerox and the things that I learned at PTC <clears throat> and the things that I've learned about business. And I started writing it down and that's how force management was born. I landed when I got to London, I picked up the phone. I called my best friend, Grant Wilson. He has just coming back from, uh, it was a Monday and he was just coming back on the weekend from a, a dear friend of ours whose twin brother committed suicide. 
So Grant was all turned upside down and he was all like, you know, the meaning of life and like we all do when we face those things. And so it was perfect timing. And he was commuting to Boston for four years from Charlotte. He had an apartment in Boston. And so I just was on the phone with them and we, and that's how force management was born. And within a year we launched the company. I had to get my family back and, but that's how we launched the company and how we launched it. JR was just going to be, you know, it was going to be a lifestyle company. And what I meant by a lifestyle company was we were looking for ways to um, replace our corporate incomes. And then it just kind of took off. So and how did it take off? We picked up the phone and we called our network of former PTC people that were in different companies, the Thurmans of the world, the McMahons of the world. Uh, and they, you know, the first thing they said was, well, can you come in and be our VP of sales or what have you? I said, well, you know, we probably could do that, but we're trying to form this company. And I never thought it was going to turn into what it's turned into today. We've recapitalized. We've sold it twice. Um, we're we're uh, it's grown into something that has become, you know, probably the the premier provider of, uh, you know, elite skills and and alignment uh, methodologies uh, for sellers for hand to hand combat skills. Would if I'm being honest with you, if I told you, is that what I was envisioning? No, it wasn't. I wanted to be a better dad. Actually, my father was an incredible father. Um, and I just wanted to be present with my family. And um, and I got lucky because I was able to be present with my family, move back to, you know, the United States. I coached my kids in sports and watched them go do the things that I wasn't really able to do in corporate America. And um, again, I feel like I really got blessed and was lucky. But that's how force management started, dude. It was going to be a lifestyle company and, and uh, meaning that it was just going to be Grant and I just consulting. And, um, you know, it turned into something else, which um, I'm pretty proud of. You should be. It's uh, it's it's kind of ingratiating like the the skills that created the Xerox and the PTCs of the world into these like next generation software sellers and companies. And I think, you know, one of the things that I took away from my own experience with force management was like this idea of getting it's it, you don't think of them as fundamentals, but they really are like, mm. like, and, and I think, I know you're a huge believer in the fundamentals of selling and getting back to those and, you know, enjoying the process of mastering those fundamentals. So like our kids are a lot of the kids that we work with are kind of entry level kind of BDRs focusing on prospecting and, and getting into closing roles as quickly as possible. And we really harp on the fundamentals. So like from your perspective, what are, what are the fundamentals for these early stage sellers that are looking to get into closing roles quickly? Yeah, I think it's a really, really good question. And I think it's really appropriate too. like, if you're an elite athlete, it means you do the fundamentals really, really well, whether you realize it or not, um, can't be elite if you don't have the fundamentals. Now, some people don't realize that it's the fundamentals that make them elite. But if you can kind of get in tune with that, um, then I think you'll have a tremendous advantage. And for sales, I think the fundamentals have been this. It's Egypt old. It's 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 old as dirt. Um, I think there are fun. We've talked about one of them, the fundamental of discovery and the art of discovery and learning how to ask great discovery questions and how to position discovery, make it more about you 
excuse me, make it more about the, an outside in, make it about the customer first and earn the right to make it about you. That's a whole topic there. But discovery is a clear fundamental. Um, attaching yourself to the biggest business issue, learning how to attach pe- technical pain to business outcomes is a fundamental skill that the most elite sellers on the planet do. And I think it's one that you just got to get mastery on. Uh, influencing decision criteria with your differentiation is an elite skill. So it's not just gathering requirements. It is understanding what the decision criteria is and influencing that decision criteria to make it more favorable through your differentiation and making it good for the customer. That's an elite skill. And then, JR, as you're well aware, being a voracious qualifier is an elite skill. When I say elite skill, I don't want to scare anybody. You got to start learning that now. I'm not saying it's like you go learn this, you know, 10 years into sale. This is what you got to be doing now. And voracious qualifying, just to make it simple, go find a company that that uses Medic or MedPick. Get involved in that. That is the original qualification criteria that was started at PTC that led to the 43 straight quarters of, you know, incredible performance. Um I would go to a company uh, or we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, go to my company and, you know, join the Ascender platform and learn those uh, medic skills. Um, That'll give you a massive, massive fast start to a great selling career uh, to be a voracious qualifier with qualification criteria, you know, of medic and med pick. So those are the ones that I would say are like, you got to math. Those are the fundamental. Those are the blocking and tackling of sales. Yeah, that the the tying to the biggest business problem or business goal is something that cha- it changed the way I sell forever. Um, yeah, and I and I can't emphasize that piece enough. Like, it doesn't matter really what your product does, but if the outcomes are relevant to the C suite, th- that's what you need to be talking about, right? You get relegated. Yeah to who you sound like if you're talking about what they're talking about in earnings calls and in their, in their 10 Ks, like that's, that's who you're going to get connected with and be able to sell to. Right. Um, Good brother. Good learning right there, man. Good learning. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) It works, man. And, and so historically, John, I've obviously, and I think our listeners are the same. We've always thought of force management as a group that descends into a sales, an existing sales organization. And it really does like a lot of deep work around improving performance from like the foundation up, the message up. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of these new initiatives you have going on um, that your team is working on? Cause I think especially our listeners and they're, they're, you know, we, we raise, we try to raise them to be students of the game and try to find where can they go get content? Where can they go learn to become, you know, a sales pro, which we'll talk about, but what are some of those new initiatives you guys have going on at force management? Well, we talked a little bit about it and, and, and the reason why we came up with what we've come up with now. So we're launching a new platform called the sender and you can find it on a sender.co. Um, and this platform is all these skills that we're talking about. Uh, and it doesn't rely on, uh, whether your company, this is the number one reason why we launched this platform is because people would call us and say, Hey, um, 
you know, where can, what books can I read? What, where can I go to sharpen the saw? Where can I go to be a further student of the game? And first of all, I was just blown away by the number of people out there that were like committed to doing that. I mean, I feel like I've been like that in my life and I realized, well, there's lots of other people out there like that, but there's no place to go. Um, if your company doesn't, you know, invest in certain things. And so we came up with a B2C platform, which we are incredibly, incredibly excited about. But learning these elite skills that I just talked about and then being a part of a community like of other people. So let's say you got a bad coach. Well, can you go and what did I do when I had the, a bad coach? I went to see who was starting ahead of me or what have you. And I watched film on them. And I became my own coach. And I said, what are the most elite players on the team doing? What are they doing on the field? What are they doing off the field? What are they eating? How are they, you know, holding themselves or what have you? And so for me, we wanted to create a community for people to be able to do that. And then to top it off with certifications, like we should be able to get something for it. So like if we're part of an elite community and we're part of putting in the work, I want to be able to go get recognized as, you know, being somebody that's putting in the work. And and that's what the Ascender platform is going. I love the name Ascender. I think about like Michigan in 1997 going for that national championship and they're climbing the mountain, they're ascending up the mountain. And and um, so we're really, really, really excited about that. That is a, uh, it's been in the works for a while. We wanted to do it right with the technology. We wanted to make it easy for people to use. We wanted to make it valuable. Um, and, uh, so that is the, <clears throat> that's the gem of, of what we've been working on for a little bit there. Yeah. And I, and I think any shift alumni, keep your head on a swivel. Cause I'm sure there's going to be some, uh, some joint partnership there that we're going to get some, some of Let's our access to that. So Let's no go. <laughs> um, you've talked a lot, John, about, and these are the last two questions. So this one's an important one. Cause one of the reasons I started shift group is cause I was already, mentoring a lot of like former hockey players and baseball players from my own network. Like really all shift group is, is commercializing something that I've done for 15 years because in my mind, I wouldn't be where I am. I wouldn't have accomplished what I've accomplished, you know, and gotten to the roles I've gotten to without the mentors that, that kind of took me under their wing. Can you think of a favorite mentor of yours that you've had and, and what the most important lesson they taught you was? That's my parents. Norm and Eileen Kaplan, God rest their souls. Um, they were unbelievable, man. My, uh, that's the last time I wore a uniform, too. That's uh, the California Bowl in 1985. We were ranked 20th in the nation. Uh, we go into Fresno, uh, California, thinking, you know, and they were ranked 20th in the nation. It was a big game on ESPN, and they beat us 51-7. to but let me tell you, let me tell you what I love about this picture. First of all, that's painted by, there's so much symbolism here, brother. That's painted by an, a teammate of mine, Greg Johnson in Detroit. You got to look him up on the internet. Greg Dirty, his, his, his name, his nickname was Dirty. Greg Johnson is an artist in Detroit. Um, he was phenomenal artist back then. And I, I had this picture. You should see the picture. It's unbelievable how he how he created this and you probably can't see it too well here but but that's the last time that i ever wore a uniform and i'll just tell you about my parents really quick so my father was unbelievable smartest man i ever met in my life smartest man i ever met in my life and my father taught me how to handle my business 
like to be accountable and to be responsible. And I struggled a little bit. So, you know, my mother here, um, my mother was an unbelievably beautiful woman. She was talented. She was an actress and she was a stewardess and she gave up her career to raise four boys that, that drove them, that drove my mother, you know, and nuts. And I'll tell you, she became a severe alcoholic and drug addict. And, um, uh, my father quit his job. We were living in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. It was a, one of the wealthiest places with car companies. And my father was working with an advertising, he was an advertising executive and, and, um, we lost everything, dude. We lost our house. We lost, um, we lost everything, but we didn't lose the family, dude. We did not lose the family. My three brothers went to the University of Michigan, the greatest university in the land. And uh, they weren't athletes. They were the smart ones. And and uh, they're doing unbelievable things and raised families. And, you know, my father kept the family together. His other knucklehead son, me, got an athletic scholarship. And so let me tell you what this woman did. So that's what my father taught me. Let me tell you what this woman did. She recovers, Jr. She recovers and she goes on to go to school at 40 years old. She she goes through, uh, um, she goes and she four points college and then she four points her master's program and she comes out and she dedicates her life to substance abuse and counseling uh, families on substance abuse. And my father passed away when she was 70, she would have been 68 years old. The Department of Defense hired my mother to work on military bases around the world. JR, she did it till she was 84 years old. 84 years old, she's working on military bases. She dedicated her life to the men and women in, in armed forces to work with them to not commit suicide. And that's what she dedicated her life to. So when you talk about, like, I know that not a lot of people, there's a lot of different stories. And I know that I'm just lucky. I was born into that, you know, my parents were the best mentors that, that I ever had. And let me tell you what, why this picture is so profound for me. That year, I tore my knee in the, a week before the first ball game. That's the only game I played in. That's the only game that I played in. And um, uh, it, I can't even get into the story of how badly I wanted to play. And we were, you know, 11-0. and 0, And we were just tearing up the conference. And I was out so long that the younger kids that, you know, I'm a senior and the younger kids are coming up and I just wasn't really that good for them to, you know, so they were being nice to me and encouraging me and saying, Hey, you know, you're really good. Your grades are good. You're going to go get a great job. And by the time this game rolled around, I think I did have already had an interview with Xerox and I wound up going there, but it wasn't about that for me, dude. I had to come back like I had to come back and I had to play. And that is the only game I played in as a senior and how fitting this is. It's just really symbolic for me. I know I'm giving you way more than you wanted, but, but those are, those are the best mentors I've ever had in my life. And, and uh, I'm lucky, dude, I'm lucky. You gave me goosebumps. I, I, I'm celebrating 10 years of sobriety here in 18 days, John. So I, buddy, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the, the, the mission and journey that your mom went on and to do what she did. That's, uh, it's incredible. Uh, Thanks buddy. She was an incredible woman, dude. Incredible. And, 
and my and my one of my biggest um, mentors is also my father's a, a legendary high school hockey coach here in Massachusetts in the Hockey Hall of Fame, and I'm the oldest of three boys. My my both my brothers played Division One hockey as well. One of them went on to the NHL and the Olympics. And when we were growing up, my dad used to say to us, "Listen, a lot of people play hockey, but there's not a lot of hockey players." Yeah, and he kind of instilled in us this idea of professionalism from a from an early age of being a pro. And now we try to do that with the kids we work with when they get into sales careers. We think the highest kind of uh, nomenclature you can use to, to kind of describe someone is a sales pro. Like you're, this guy's a pro, this girl's a pro. What does that mean? This is the last question. What is, what is being a sales pro? What does that mean to you, John? For me, it means being uncommon. It means, and being uncommon is about doing things that the common man or woman chooses not to do. And in sales, the things that I talked about, those fundamental skill sets, those uh, committing yourself to being the very best that you can be. And if the formula is really not that hard. It is learning the fundamentals and committing yourself to being uncommonly great with those fundamentals. Like any other sport that any of your people have played and that they became elite at, that was the formula. And that's what the formula is now. And it's, it's like putting that together. It's not just understanding what the fundamentals are. It's committing yourself to being uncommonly excellent to those fundamentals. And that's what being an elite professional salesperson, you'll hear people say, you know, student of the game or what have you. It's like, that's why we created Ascender is I wanted a place where people could go and do that. People would say, okay, John, I get it, but where can I go and do that? What book can I read? And, you know, what, there's lots of books. My, you know, Johnny McMahon, one of my favorite people on, you know, you should, they, everybody should read The Qualified Sales Leader. That's a great book to read. And then, okay, so like what else? And, and so that's why we wanted to create Ascender to give people a place to go. That's where the pros are going to go. That's where, that's where pros are going to be made in that community. So thanks for allow, allowing me to talk about that, brother. No, thank you. Thank you for joining us, John. And, and our alumni will know your voice because I make everybody listen to the Who's Doing This uh, episode. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so that's think, where Uncommon came from, brother. Who's doing this, JR? Who's doing this, baby? Who's doing Amen. this? Amen. Amen. Uh, John, thank you so much, man. I'm, I'm really excited and we'll definitely continue the conversation on the back end on a partnership with uh, Ascender and, and Shift Group. So thank you so much and, and really appreciate you joining us, John. Thanks for having me, brother. Thanks to, to all your listeners out there. Go be uncommon. This wraps up this episode of Merchants of Change. If you enjoyed this episode, the most meaningful way to say thanks is to submit a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in working with us, please come find us at www.shiftgroup.io.